Hi, I'm Erica, and this is Story Sanctuary. Story Sanctuary is a NICU storytelling podcast, and each episode features a different family's birth and NICU story. In the last episode, I started telling my own story, and unfortunately, there's a part one and a part two to our story. In the last episode, I traced Birdie's diagnosis with the emphalocele, our pregnancy journey, and then the NICU stay and Birdie coming home. And today, I'll continue that story. When Birdie was born, her emphalocele was organs encased in a sac, and over time, and with some medication and some treatment, that sac turned into skin, and our plan was always to leave it as it is, let her grow, get bigger, get stronger, and then we would do an emphalocele closure, which is to put those organs inside and close the muscle and the skin over the top. Our plan was also for her to start working on weaning off the vent. After being home for a while and using the ventilator 24-7, we were able to take Birdie off for five minutes and then 10 minutes and then 15 minutes. And I remember that very first day, it was December of 2019, we went into the appointment and the nurse practitioner told us to turn the vent off and let Birdie breathe on her own. And Birdie did it for five whole minutes and it was so exciting, but also scary because we had been so careful to make sure she was always attached to the circuit, to that support. And so to just take her off and let her breathe on her own was pretty exciting, but also scary, but she did a great job. We got a lot of family time together during COVID. And although it was a difficult move to have to make from Missouri to Kansas and stressful at the time, we were very grateful for that move during COVID because we moved into a neighborhood and we were living on a cul-de-sac. And so we were able to actually get to take walks around the neighborhood and go to the local park and get to greet our neighbors and not be totally afraid of everyone that we came in contact with on the street. It was a very comfortable way to spend this time. And I look back at that time really pleasantly. At that point, it seemed like we were on a linear path to healing. Birdie's lungs were getting better each day and we were getting more and more time off the ventilator. Her emphalocele was getting smaller because we were using this contain and compress method with an ACE bandage. And life seemed like, it seemed like we had just overcome something incredibly difficult and we were on our path away from that, moving towards happiness and health. I mentioned that Birdie became jaundiced at three or four months old in the last episode and that it just went away. The liver team decided to keep looking at her liver numbers and apparently they continue to be elevated but because nothing she wasn't jaundiced anymore and we weren't having any signs of liver failure they felt comfortable to just leave it alone and just watch the numbers so they were trending down and trend up and trend down and trend up but they were still in a really high range after just over a year of being home so in the fall of 2020 Birdie became extremely jaundiced again. Just one day I looked at her eyes and her skin and I could tell that she was getting really yellow. And so we scheduled 
blood work and an appointment with the liver team to figure out what was going on. At that appointment, the team said what they had been saying. We don't feel like there's a need to do anything. There's nothing we can do. They weren't comfortable cutting into her emphalocele because if you went into the emphalocele, you'd have to close it. And the surgeons did not want to close Bertie's emphalocele. So without any other signs or reasons, they figured that we should just continue to wait. But something in my mama brain, mama heart told me that that wasn't the right answer. I went and I looked in our Facebook group and read every single post that any mother who had a child with an emphalocele and also had liver issues had posted. And I kept finding stories that had similar aspects to ours, but nothing that looked exactly like ours. And then I did. I found the story of a child who would periodically get jaundice and had the other symptoms that Birdie had with elevated liver enzymes. So I looked at every single post the mother had made in the group, starting from the day he was born and tracing through all of their liver issues until I noticed that it ended because the child had passed. So at that point, I had to decide if it was a good idea to reach out to this mom and get more information and decided that, you know, at the very least, I know this is a traumatic, terrible thing that happened with her and her family, but I might as well reach out and see if I can get some more information. So I did. I sent her a Facebook message and immediately she sent me back paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs. And she was so loving and willing to help. She told us, Every single doctor her child has seen at every hospital around the country, she told me what they had looked for at all the different appointments, what the surgeon's thoughts were. She told me where she feels like if she could go back, what she would have done differently, where she feels like the doctors made mistakes. She said, make sure you get this scan, this scan, and this scan done. The issue that the team had with her child was that... They weren't keeping an eye on the health of his liver. And so she said, if I could go back, I would make sure that we knew how his liver was doing before it became too late. What ended up happening was our child went into liver failure, but because his plumbing was different, the way everything was hooked up due to his emphalocele, when he needed a transplant, it ended up being a multivisceral transplant, which is a grouping of several organs and not just a liver transplant. And they didn't get the transplant in time. So I took this information to our doctor and said, I know you said you've never seen a child like Birdie before. You don't know what to do with her situation. Well, I found someone. I found someone who has basically the exact same situation as us. And not only that, but I can tell you every single doctor that this child went to go see so that you can contact those doctors. And also the mother said that we could have access to his medical records if that's what we needed to do, that she would do anything to help another child in the same situation so that no family would have to go through what they went through. I passed that on to our liver team and I was told to wait, but I knew that we couldn't wait anymore. So I reached out to the Cincinnati Children's Hospital and wanted to take Birdie there Our insurance said, you know what, don't go to Cincinnati. You can just go to Omaha 
It's the same sort of institution. They do the same things and it's closer to home and they're in network. So we looked into it and Omaha seemed like a great idea. And at this point, of course, we had no idea how long we'd end up staying in Omaha, but it really did end up being a blessing in disguise that we weren't a plane ride away from home, but rather a car ride. So we decided last January to travel up and meet with the liver teams there. We went up several times to meet with hepatology. We met with the medical doctors. We met with the surgeons. And when we showed the surgeon Bertie's medical history, he said, Bertie has a cholidocal cyst. We were like, wait, how do you know that? Where we came from, no one could figure out what was going on with her. And it just seemed like a mystery. How can you be so sure? And he said, this is a classic case of a cholidocal cyst, just judging from her symptoms and her medical records. So he said, let's go ahead and do the surgery. At that point, we were in a strange situation because Bertie's jaundice had again went away. And we didn't know, is this a surgery that we need to do tomorrow? This was in February. So it's like, should we do it in March? Or... Is this a surgery that we can wait a year for? We weren't sure, but after consulting with uh, the head of the hepatology program at our home hospital, it was decided that we would do the surgery in June. The head of the hepatology program at our hospital had trained at the hospital in Omaha and knew the folks up there. And I remember him saying, If it was my child, I would go ahead and do the surgery in the next few months, and I would trust any of those doctors with the life of anyone in my family. So we made the decision to do the surgery in Omaha. We planned from March until June, and when I look back now, there was a lot of anxiety and fretting. The surgery was going to be somewhat simple. If Bertie didn't have an emphalocele, it would be really straightforward. They would go in, remove the cyst, connect the basically the plumbing in a way that would allow the bile to flow better, close her emphalocele, pull the muscle tight over it, and then give her a G-tube. Since Bertie came home from the NICU, she had an NG-tube because of the way the emphalocele is situated, she wasn't a candidate for a G-tube, so she had an NG tube on her face that was taped to her cheek, went in her nose, and then went down in her stomach, which along our journey, I didn't even mention that, but that was another traumatic but necessary thing that we had to do. Every two to three weeks, Bill and I would have to take that NG tube out and replace it with a new NG tube. And as you could imagine, Placing your child's feeding tube through their nose and snaking it down to their stomach is a pretty torturous experience for both her and for us. We were, I mean, we did that because we had to, but we were really looking forward to having a G-tube, something more discreet. And that's a tube that goes in through her belly. It goes to her stomach. And so it'd be, you know, underneath her shirt. And also... NG tubes are scary because if they become dislodged and you get any kind of liquid into your lungs, then that could be devastating, of course, for the child. Um, And so we were ready to be done with that NG tube. 
we were looking forward to the surgery, but also incredibly nervous because it had been so long since we had surgery. Our last surgery was at four months old. And at this point, Birdie was two. She was two. So after planning all these months and preparing all of our family and friends, we went up for the surgery that was scheduled in June. And I'll never forget this day because we have been just on edge planning for this surgery, praying, thinking about what this is going to be like, um, comforting our family, and just letting them know that everything's going to be taken care of, that this is the best idea, preparing Birdie. We got all these different books like Curious George Goes to the Hospital and Franklin Goes to the Hospital and spent all of this time talking to her about surgery and what it's going to be like to talk to the doctors and have to stay overnight in the hospital. We get up to Omaha, we go through our pre-op appointments and everything is about to happen. And at around 4 p.m. the day before the surgery, and you know, for surgeries, you usually have to get up pretty early in the morning. So we had planned to be back at the hospital early. But right around that time, we got a call and the person on the phone said, we can't do your surgery tomorrow morning. It was like a balloon filling up with air and then being popped and just deflating. I sat down, kind of collapsed into a chair and was just like, wait, what do you mean? What's happening? And by that point, they had hung up. So my husband was like, no, call them back. We need to get someone on the phone. What, what do you mean that we can't do the surgery tomorrow? We've been planning for this surgery. It's time to do the surgery. So we called a bunch of different numbers and ended up getting someone back on the phone and basically the issue is that one of the surgeons had us on this schedule. The other surgeon did not have us on his schedule. We had two because one was a liver surgeon and the other was the plastic surgeon who was going to be working on Birdie's emphalocele closure. But one of them did not have us on the schedule. And so he wasn't going to be there. He was out when we were supposed to have this surgery. We were so disappointed and confused about how this could happen. The surgery had been planned since March and it's now June. You'd think that it'd be on the schedule, but oh my goodness, we were just, we didn't know what to do. Is this, is the surgery going to be tomorrow? Like, should we go back to Kansas city? Is this surgery like, we need to know more information. Is it going to be in a month? What is going on? So we eventually, um, in the beginning, they couldn't tell us anything, but after several hours, maybe even the next day, someone told us that the surgery would be rescheduled for the following week, which was strange because we had already, also when you travel with a child who has medical needs, I mean, when you travel with any child, it can be extremely difficult and stressful to get everything together. But when you travel with a medical child to have all of their equipment and all of the supplies and you know, it was just a stressful process to get there. And so now it's like, oh, well, go home, but don't unpack or anything because you're just going to come back in five days um, and just kind of be in an in-between period during that time. But we'll see you next week. It was just the strangest situation to bring us into this surgery, but it also, now that I look back on it, there are a lot of lessons, like knowing that things happen for a reason and that some things are just outside of your control. I also use this as a way to remember to let go of that spirit of fear and to have faith and patience because things were going to happen the way they were supposed to happen. 
and in life things happen the way they are supposed to happen. So we went back up for the surgery that following week and went into our pre-op and talked to the anesthesiologist. And I have this image in my head from that day, which was us talking to the anesthesiologist and Bertie laying down on the hospital cot watching Daniel Tiger. This image came back to me and would come back to me several times over the next few weeks as the before picture of what she had just been like. And when I was living in the the now, just thinking about that moment of how happy and peaceful she was and how we had been as well, and not knowing in that moment that our lives were drastically about to change. Bertie went in for her surgery, and it was about eight hours. We spent eight hours roaming around the hospital. I remember crocheting and eating, and we knew it was going to be a long surgery, so we had planned really well what we were going to do. That was some advice that had been given to me by my psychologist was to plan before we get there. We know it's going to be long. Plan out the time so that you're not sitting there fretting. And that's exactly what I did. And then... We got the call to talk to the surgeons and to go see her. We talked to the plastic surgeon who did the emphalosal closure and the liver surgeon. And they both said everything went amazingly well. The liver surgeon said he was correct. It was a cholidocal cyst in her bile duct that was causing bile to back up into her liver. And that procedure he performed went well. But... Oh, that was something else I had forgotten to mention. The head of the hepatology program we spoke with told us that we should do a liver biopsy. And the mother of the child I had spoken with also echoed this. Again, we need to keep an eye on the health of her liver through this process so that uh, we wouldn't know that her liver was sick until too late. So we also asked the team to do a liver biopsy. And the surgeon said, you know, everything went well, but... I will say her liver didn't look like a normal, healthy liver. We won't know what's going on with it until we get the results from the biopsy back, but I do want to let you know that her liver just didn't look healthy. We said, okay. We went to go see her in the room, and she was in so much pain. She was writhing around, and there were people running around. They had this concern about compartment syndrome. And so they were monitoring her blood pressure and we stayed with her for a while and then we decided to go to the Ronald McDonald house at night to sleep. When Bertie was in the hospital before and every time she'd had an inpatient stay, I always stayed with her in the hospital room. This room that she was in at the hospital was way too small for anyone to stay in And so we made a decision to leave and go to Ronald McDonald to get some sleep. We went to Ronald McDonald house and we fell asleep. And that night I dreamed that something was wrong with Birdie, that she was dying. And I woke up that morning really freaked out. We did like we did before when Bertie was in the NICU and we called the hospital right before going to sleep and we were going to call again in the morning 
And so I woke up with a start from that dream and I called the hospital to see how she was doing and we couldn't get her nurse on the phone. Whoever answered the phone said, she's busy right now. She's in the room with her um, and couldn't give us any information. So I woke Bill up. I said, we need to get to the hospital right now. We rushed back to the hospital and it turns out that night her liver numbers shot through the roof and they were worried that maybe the closure of her emphalocyte was compressing her liver and didn't know what was going on. So they said, we're going back into emergency surgery. We got to open her back up. We had planned so well for that surgery the first day, what we were going to do during it, how we were going to spend our time. And it went so well. It was a, a peaceful experience, all things considered. And then all of a sudden that next morning, it was the opposite. It was terrifying and horrible because we weren't expecting this. And then I also felt so bad to have left her at the hospital the night before for the first time. So they took her into surgery and the next few days were a blur. The first surgery was on a Thursday. The emergency surgery was on a Friday. On Saturday, they told us that her kidneys weren't functioning well because her liver had taken a hit and that she needed to go on dialysis. They told us that she was in liver failure. On Saturday, they sat us down and said that, that she needed to get put on the transplant list immediately. My parents rushed up from Kansas City to be with us and... There was there were several days where we didn't know if she was going to make it. And I mentioned that before where we had just on Thursday morning had her with us and she's watching Daniel Tiger on the iPad and just kinda of hanging out while we we're talking to the anesthesiologist. And then all of a sudden through that weekend, she's covered in IVs. She's so swollen. She's paralyzed, sedated. She had lines, the dialysis connected through her neck through three different lines. So she just, what it would do is take the blood out of her body and filter it and then put it back in her body to see that image after our peaceful family image for the day before. It was just like, it was just torture. Like what is happening? How can this be happening to us? The lady that married Bill and I, is a minister and we had her call us and we went to the chapel on that Saturday night and we just cried and prayed. On Sunday, I reached out to the team and I said, you know, I was doing some reading and is it possible for me to be her live liver, liver donor? And he said, yes, if that's what you want to do, you all have the same blood type. Like, let's get you worked up. So on Monday, I went to the hospital and I started to get worked up to be her liver donor. I had to do several psychological evaluations. I had to do an MRI, CT scan. One of them was with dye. And it was just, I felt insane. It was a complete out-of-body experience. Me just being given this list of appointments to go to and then 
walking through this hospital that I'm unfamiliar with and just going to the appointments, answering questions, preparing myself for surgery, a major surgery. I remember thinking, what in the Lifetime movie is happening right now? Am I really about to have surgery to give my daughter part of my liver so that she can live? Like what? What? After everything we already went through with the NICU and everything that's happened so far, is this where we really are right now? Um, but of course, I would do anything for her. So I was ready to do it. I finished all my appointments that day. And I get back to the room where my husband and Bertie were and we get a call saying that they found a liver for her. This was on Monday after I did all the appointments. I forgot to mention on Saturday we got sat down and said we need to put her on the list. And they also said she's so sick that she's going to shoot to the top of the list, um, which was comforting that she was at the top of the list, but also totally scary. Like we don't have any time. This needs to happen right now. And it happened quick. So Saturday, they put us on the list. Monday, we got the call about a liver. And Wednesday, Birdie went in and got her new liver. That day was really exciting. Also scary, of course. Um, but we just knew this is the next thing that we needed to do. And her liver surgery went well. After that, we were able to start waking her kidneys up and seeing how they were doing and get her off of dialysis. And when she was off of the dialysis, right around that time, they took the paralytic off so she could open her eyes and she wasn't sedated anymore. Um, and we started to get our little girl back. What had happened was Birdie was already at stage three out of four liver cirrhosis that biopsy determined her liver wasn't healthy. The surgery happened and her liver just couldn't recover from it. She was headed towards liver failure anyway. It was going to happen outside of the hospital, at home at some point. Um, it just so happened to be at this hospital at this time. And this hospital specialized in pediatric liver transplants. So while this wild ride was happening, we were also just thanking God that we were in the right place at the right time for this to have happened. Because if she had gone into liver failure at home, who knows what hospital we would have made it to or where we would have been life lighted to or what would have happened. Um, I mentioned in the beginning things happening for a reason. My dad had a great perspective about our surgery being postponed a week where he said, well, maybe the surgery was postponed to get her closer to that liver that she needed, which is a, a great perspective because when she did go into liver failure, it was just a few days from the liver that came through for her. And if it had been a week before, would we haven't had to wait longer, would her body have not made it as long? We don't know, but I just really appreciated that perspective. So after all of this happened, I wanted to reach out to the child's mom who I who helped us and gave us all that information. And it was a hard message to think about writing because I wanted to thank her for this gift that she had given our family, which was the information and the gift of Birdie's life. But also she had lost her child. How do you thank someone for saving your child when they 
lost theirs, but I did it. I wrote a message explaining to her how valuable the information she gave us had been and sent it. I immediately got a message back where she thanked me for the message I sent. And she said, Eric, I'm so glad that we could help you and that your child is still here. Today is my birthday, and this is just the greatest message I could have ever received on this birthday. The fact that we helped you and that your child is doing so well. In my initial message, I mentioned wanting to make sure this didn't happen to anyone else and that I would, in my own way, pass that on, the information and our experience. And in her message, she said, if you figure out a way to do that, let me know and I want to help you as well. It ended up being this beautiful exchange that I was extremely nervous about, understandably beforehand, but it turned out really well. That same night of her birthday, when I sent that message, Bill and I went out to um, to celebrate and just, like, I believe at this point, Birdie was still paralyzed and or sedated. So we went to go grab dinner and we were talking about wanting to celebrate Birdie's transplant in some way. We don't know anything about our donor. We know that the liver got cut down to fit her, so it likely wasn't a child her size, but we don't know anything about the donor. And I told Bill, I felt like this child, who the mother had helped us by giving the information, uh, that he was our donor in a way, and that if we don't know who the liver donor was, in some way maybe we could celebrate Charlie and this mother some, you know, each year. We were just kind of snowballing, throwing out ideas, like maybe we could volunteer at the Ronald McDonald house or do a blood drive. Bill said, well, what day are we going to do it on? I'm like, I don't know. How can we decide what day? Do we want to do it on the day that Birdie got her transplant? I don't know. And then Bill said, well, when was the little boy's birthday? So I went to the mother's Facebook page to see when her son's birthday was, thinking maybe we could use it as that day. And Bill and I fell out of our seats because little Charlie's birthday is the same day as Bill's birthday, as Bill's mom's birthday, and of one of my best friend, Lydia, her birthday. Like this day is already such a special day and such a present day in our lives. We're like, what? Out of all the 365 days of the year, this is the day that was called on us to use as a day of celebration. It just felt like kismet and this beautiful moment of things coming together. After Birdie's surgery, we ended up staying in Omaha for seven weeks. She kept spiking fevers and we couldn't quite figure out what was going on. Uh, turns out it was a reaction to a medication. And as the medication started to be weaned, then the fevers subsided. But in that time, Bill took off three weeks from work. Our surgery, the coledocal cyst removal surgery, was supposed to have us in Omaha for two weeks. And so Bill had taken, oh, and then of course with the surgery being rescheduled, Bill had taken off three weeks from work. And after the third week, he had to go back to Kansas City to do his work. And I had to stay in Omaha with Bird. Um, when Bill went back for work, he ended up catching COVID 
and couldn't come back for three additional weeks. <laughs> so I was completely alone in Omaha. During this time, I was asked several times if I was angry about what had happened, about being told to wait at our hospital um, and not getting any more information and having to go up to Omaha and then them knowing exactly what was going on and then Bernie headed towards liver failure and no one catching it. And since I have had moments of being extremely angry, but at the time when we were in Omaha, I wasn't angry. I just felt an overwhelming want of preventing what happened to us from happening to anyone else. I was like, okay, in the Facebook group, if anyone even thinks about the word liver, I'm going to be like, what's going on with your family? How's your child doing? And just be there as a mentor for people because kids with them fallacies are very unique and they each follow their own path, which made it difficult with the boy that came before us because no one has seen what was going on with him. But now that we're starting to see these issues pop up and there's at least two of us that had similar things go on, then we need to be making sure that this doesn't continue to happen. I talked in the last episode about my amazing experience with the primary care nurses at our home hospital. And being in the PICU in Omaha, I wanted to jump back into the relationships I had before. Um, just, you know, being really familiar and having friendships um, with these people, but it just wasn't possible and it wasn't happening. At our hospital in the NICU, I had a positive experience with the nurses and the doctors, but admittedly, I had a more positive experience with the nurses because I spent more time with them. In Omaha, it was swapped more of my positive experiences with the doctors and with the surgeons and with the nurse practitioners and less so with the nurses. It was a vastly different experience and the culture of the critical care units were extremely different. Being in the PICU in Omaha was like being in the NICU, minus everything I had known as my comforts, my nurses, my family, my city, my husband, a hospital that cared about and catered to the parents' experience. I was alone and I slept in Bertie's room for the first month. And eventually I was totally exhausted and I hit rock bottom and I was just delirious. I was so tired and needed a night's rest so bad. I had been waiting for Bill to get back so that he could sleep with Birdie in the hospital and then I could go back to the Ronald McDonald house and then he got COVID and I just, there was no, no relief on the horizon. So I had to make the decision to start to leave myself and trust that Birdie would be okay overnight at some point during this time, I started panicking, realizing that we were back in critical care. Um, there's one thing to go in for a surgery, get the surgery and leave. When you're back in critical care in this way, you start chasing your tail and you get medication. And then there's symptoms that arise from having taken that medication. Then you're treating those symptoms. And then you're you know, on this treatment or this procedure is done. And then you have issues with it because of that. And then all of a sudden, I was just like, oh my gosh, we are back in the ICU. How did we get here? I did have a positive experience with some of the techs and some of the respiratory therapists um, when we were in Omaha. 
the way that I was treated, not just by the staff, but by the people coming in and out of the hospital and how invisible and invaluable I felt reminded me that everyone has value and that you never know someone's story. And it was just a repeated reminder to myself to treat people with respect and to ask questions about people's lives because being asked a question about how you're doing or what happened to you before you got to where you are that day could change someone's life. It could save someone's life. I talked a lot to the techs and the RTs and um, there were folks that had dealt with cancer themselves their children's getting transplants. Uh, there was one respiratory therapist who had been in the NICU at this hospital herself when she was a child. And when I looked at them, I would not have known these stories, but asking questions really opened up relationships and helped us to have some really great conversations, which helped comfort me during this time. It was understood that after you get the transplant, you get discharged and you go stay locally for four to six weeks for a liver transplant. Different transplants have different times of how long you have to stay locally. But for the liver transplant, we'd have to stay for four to six weeks in Omaha. So I had that plan when we got out, Birdie and I would just spend the rest of the summer in Omaha, maybe even a little bit of early fall. But then we couldn't get Birdie off the ventilator and back onto breathing on her own all day and all night. At this point, when we were in the hospital, she was still on the ventilator at night. And it was determined that we wouldn't have to stay in Omaha. Our team felt comfortable that when it was time for us to go home, we could go back to Kansas City. And we could work with the doctor who trained with them. Um, They trusted him and his team to do our follow-up visits there. And they could manage us from afar. And we would also be able to work with our pulmonologist to get Birdie back off the vent. Birdie's godmother, Simone, and her mother were visiting the day that we got that news. And I was just, I mean, it was great because we got to go out and celebrate, but I was completely in shock. Like, wait, we don't have to stay for four to six weeks. We can go right back to Kansas City. I just couldn't even believe it. So after seven weeks, um, we were told that we could leave and go back to Kansas City. During the rounds the day we were discharged, the liver doctor who had sat me down and told me that Birdie needed to be placed on the transplant list, she came and she gave me a hug to see us off and just, you know, to say we did it. You get to take your little girl home. Since Birdie's been home, we've had some other issues pop up. Um... She had, I'm not sure what they're called, but the things on your legs that squeeze your calves so you don't get blood vest, or excuse me, so you don't get blood clots. She had those on and because of one, she got a series of blisters on the back of one of her ankles and then um, she got pressure sores and got a contracture in that ankle. And so she had to relearn how to walk. We're still in that process right now. When we came back to Kansas City, we had to do serial casting Um, She had to get an AFO or a brace to wear part J's on that foot so she can get some support and start walking again. Um, We recently got back on the vent 24-7. Turns out that um, 
She's having issues with her diaphragm. She went to the OR in those first two weeks, eight different times while they were trying to figure out what the infection cause was. And of course, with the first few surgeries she had um, with her liver. And so with having opened her up eight times, it's not a surprise that her diaphragm is not working as well as it should be. At this point, we don't know if that's a temporary thing and it's going to improve over time or if it's permanent. But for now, we are we just have to wait. So we'll do a scan at the end of January and then we'll do another scan three months after that to check on her, her diaphragm. Um, but despite everything that's happened, we just, we can't thank God enough that we are home and that she's thriving, that she's happy, that she's learning, that she has friends, that she's so loved. Sometimes I think that Birdie might be the most loved little girl in the world during the time that she was, she went into liver failure and we were preparing for her surgery. There were people all over the country praying for her. There were people thinking about us, sending us well wishes, gifts to the Ronald McDonald house, cards, just holding us during this this insane summer. When I think about the lessons I've learned and continue to learn through this process, there are several. The first is that bird is going to bird. Birdie is such a unique child. Everyone is unique. Birdie's anatomy is unique on top of her brain and her personality being unique. There's just been no child with an emphalocele that ended up getting a trach, that had a colidocal cyst, that had a VSD. Like there's really just no, there's really just nobody's body that is like Birdie. And we have to, it's just an added challenge for us to not compare her to anyone. She is who she is and she's going to be that person no matter what. And we have, we just have to keep in mind that our child is incredibly unique. Another lesson is that the most valuable moment is the present one. You're not working to get somewhere else. You are exactly where you are right now. It's been discussed on the podcast before, but that mindset of, well, when we get here, blank. So, oh, when Birdie gets her trach out, then we'll do this. Or when Birdie gets her feeding tube out, then we'll do this. It's worthless in these cases, because you will be continually disappointed if you're working to get somewhere. We are already where we're supposed to be, and that is in the here and the now. Another lesson is this lesson of flow and flexibility, making plans, but not getting too attached to them. Kaylee talks about it in the episode called Kaylee and Katie of Story Sanctuary. This expectations versus goals mindset. When you set goals with our medically complex children, the likelihood for being disappointed goes up. But you can still set expectations. And it's a hard adjustment to make, but it's something that I continuously think of because every time we set some kind of goal or some linear healing journey, it just hasn't gone that way. 
and doing this mindset shift helps us to parent better and to protect ourselves from this continual disappointment. The last lesson I learned, and it also doubles as the advice I would give to other medical parents in our situation, is to go where they know. Unfortunately, we had to learn this to figure this out, but if I could go back or talk to anyone who has any issue, figure out what hospital specializes in that concern and go where they know. If I could go back to when we found out that Birdie had a liver issue when she was three months old and at that point contacted a hospital that specialized in pediatric liver, I would have done that. This journey is step by step. Birdie's middle name is Ayumi, A-Y-U-M-I, which is the Japanese word for walk. And in a name, it means to walk your own path. I was inspired to give her that name when I was pregnant because my husband and I decided we wanted to have an A name as her middle name so that her name could, her initials would be B-A-M. And my husband could call her Bam Bam. (laughs) So I was like, what is an A name that could work well for her? And at some point, the name Ayumi came across and the meaning just worked really well for me. And it was like in that moment, I knew that she would be walking her own path. And I knew it with my head, but I didn't know it with my heart yet until after this experience that we went through in Omaha this summer. Storytelling acts as a means of healing because it allows us to shift positions. Instead of this story being something that just happened to me, I get to own our story, my story, and decide what I want the lasting memory to be. The lasting memory from this leg of our journey is twofold, strength and purpose. I learned how strong I was during this process. It's easy to give my community credit for the NICU and then forget about how much I did. And in Omaha, I had to face my own strength and know that if everything I thought I needed fell away, that I can still do it, that I am capable. Birdie has been incredibly strong since the day she was born. I had a friend meet Birdie for the first time recently and they looked at her and they said, wow, Birdie does not look like what she's been through. It's true and it's a blessing. When you look at her, you see someone who is just so full of life and personality and strength. Our little girl is so strong and she's my inspiration because of it. There were moments in Omaha when I was preparing to be her liver donor and I was giving blood and I was thinking about having a major surgery and I was scared, but I thought about her and how she has done this and she continues to do this and does it with a smile on her face and ready to tackle each day. She was my inspiration then, is my inspiration now and will be my inspiration for strands for the rest of my life. My story is also one of purpose, of listening to those around me and God as I figure out what my new path will be and what my charge will be as a mother, as a friend, as a wife, as a member of this medically complex parent community. Our family has been through remarkable circumstances 
and we are still standing. But more than that, we are thriving. Thank you for listening to the second leg of our journey. <laughs>